Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Okay, everybody. We are back to finish up June of 1966 and Epic Month of Marvel Comics. It is Matt. It is Steve. But it is also David Valdeon. Hello, David. Hello. How are you doing, guys? We are doing well. I always think one should listen to podcasts in chronological order, but some people don't. If you're listening to this backwards order, this is the first time you've met David. David is an absolutely fantastic veteran Marvel artist who has drawn many wonderful Marvel books over the years and is a fan favorite. And David, I don't think we made clear last time what you are working on right now. What is your current comics assignment? Well, funny enough, it's not a Marvel comic. I'm drawing Superman for DC Comics for a oh, wow. short stint. And I'm enjoying it very much because it's a chance I never thought I'd get. I got the chance to draw Big Blue, so I'm having a lot of fun. That's fantastic. Yeah. Who is writing that? That's Josh Williamson. Josh Williamson, great. And who is inking it? Uh, myself. Oh, inking yourself on Superman. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's, electronic uh, inking or is that inking inking? Totally digital. It's the, okay. the whole thing yeah. is digital. So you, you're working like on an iPad or using a Wacom tablet or how are you doing that? It's a Wacom Synthic. I never managed to get used to the iPad, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I use a setup with my regular computer and a Synthic. Yeah, Cintiq tablets. For folks out there who, who don't necessarily know, they are essentially touchscreen graphics tablets, sort of like an iPad, but they're like the size of a drafting tabletop. That is what a lot of the more high-end professional comics artists tend to use. Well, that is just wonderful. This is a Marvel podcast. We don't approve of DC. We don't think DC exists. <laughs> we don't like Superman. We think he sucks, but that is great for you. That you are getting to do with Superman. Um, I know, oh, I know we, you're letting me go with this transgression, and I appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> so, Matt, I believe you were claiming Fantastic Four here, yes? Yes. So, we are just going to discuss one book with V today, but it is one of the all time great Marvel comics. So, again, we are finishing up the second half of June 1966. Fantastic Four had a huge four-issue storyline with the Inhumans, where we got the arrival of the great Joe Sinat on the book, bringing the book to its greatest era. Then we had an amazing three-issue storyline with Fantastic Four and Galactus being introduced. And starting next issue, we've got an amazing two-issue storyline introducing the Black Panther. Well, now we've got just a one-issue storyline in between those two amazing storylines, which is not a household name to the degree to which you could go up to any schmo on the street and go like, hey, Fantastic Four versus Silver Surfer, they might know what that is. Fantastic Four versus Black Panther, they might know what that is. Fantastic Four versus some unnamed scientist schmo, nobody's going to know what this is. But if you are a real hardcore Fantastic Four fan, this issue is just as great as all the issues that surround it. This is a little one-off story called This Man, This Monster, and it is considered by true Fantastic Four aficionados to be one of the all-time great single-issue storylines. Beautifully penciled by Kirby, beautifully inked by Synod, and beautifully written by Lee. To what degree do you want to give him credit for the potting, fully potting or co-potting, or not potting? But certainly in terms of the scripting, this man, this monster, I think an issue he was very proud of, an issue everyone involved in this book is very proud of. They say, quite possibly, this may be one of the greatest illustrated epics yet, produced by Stanley writer, Jack Kirby penciler, Joe Sinodinker, Artie Semiconder, and they are right. We begin with a page that has been frequently homaged of things standing in the rain looking movie. Let me just go ahead and say here that I noticed this time going through this that I think John Byrne probably used this as one of his primary inspirations for how he drew the thing differently from how he had been drawn through the 70s. In that, you know, you can see how his brow is. That's very much the kind of thing that Byrne did later. And this seems like a position that Byrne drew in a a how to draw the thing feature from around the time he was doing the Fantastic Four. And I hadn't noticed that before. As you say, much homaged. Much homage. The Thing was wandering the streets depressed when last we saw him last issue, and indeed he still is. And then 
This could be a huge coincidence. He interacts with some cops briefly, and then he takes shelter under an awning. And then it turned out the person who is in the apartment behind the awning is a scientist who has a trap for him. But they sort of explain that it's not a coincidence, but they have the thing think. And again, this may be that Kirby intended it to be a coincidence, and Lee tried to explain away how it wasn't. The thing thinks, I wonder what made me walk to this neighborhood. Almost like something was pulling. So seemingly this guy has lured him here with some sort of psychic device in addition to the other devices he has. This is a bald scientist who we met briefly last issue with a heavy brow. He is unnamed. And no eyebrows. Yes, (laughs) eyebrowless, which is always deeply disturbing. He brings the thing in and says, hey, let me give you something to drink and I'll knock you out. (laughs) He's got a whole closet full of Kirby tech, takes some of it out, hooks it up to the thing. It's interesting. This is, in many ways, a classic brain switching story, but he does not put his brain into the thing's body. Instead, he steals the thing's powers. So the thing is reduced to Ben Grimm and he then turns into the thing looking just like when Ben Grimm is the thing. Which is good because that means that you don't have to bring the characters back together at the end for a brain re-switching. So then he leaves Ben Grimm asleep on his couch. He goes to hang out with the Fantastic Four. Johnny is off at college. So this is just a Ben, Reed, and Sue issue. He not only looks like the thing, but in the brief time he was hanging out with Ben Grimm, he learned to talk just like him. And so he comes back and is talking just like the thing, helping move equipment around like the thing. And then... We got a scene very similar to a scene in issue 10 where Ben Grimm has woken up. Apparently, he made no effort to keep him knocked out or to restrain him. Ben Grimm shows up at the Baxter building and is like, dude, brain switching. We know how this goes. There's been brain switching going on. Clearly, I'm here. I'm Ben Grimm. Clearly, that's not me. And Reed and Sue have learned absolutely nothing from previous brain switching episodes. <laughs> and they're like, but this guy looks like the thing. He must be the thing. It's not like there's anything like brain switching in our universe. It's not like we haven't encountered that before. And it's not like it would be easier for someone to impersonate the thing than to look exactly like my oldest friend. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, one thing I had not noticed until this time going through it is I guess Ben raided the scientist's closet for clothes. Mm-hmm, yeah, because <laughs> we see the scientist ripped up green pants from when he turned into the thing on the previous page. So he must have a closet full of green pants. So there's a very funny bit where the scientist as the thing is like, you got to be kidding. If I want to clobber him, I wouldn't need a bar. I just want to put a little show for you. Now, if I ain't really the thing, then who's doing this? And he uses just his fingertips to scrunch up this bar and that completely convinces Reed and Sue, who just, they do not attempt to then restrain this person who is imitating Ben Grimm. They just send him away. They're like, all right, Mr. Ben Grimm imitator, just go walk the streets. Just go eat sand. Or what? The, what's the phrase? <laughs> uh, pound sand. Pound sand. That's the phrase I'm looking for. Go pound sand. And Ben's just like, okay, I give up. Goodbye. Reed's like, now we need to explore subspace. He's calling it subspace. It will later be called the negative zone. And it's interesting. Last episode, there was a page in the X-Men where there was a full page devoted to a bunch of machinery. And it was tremendously underwhelming. Werner Roth or Jay Gavin could not draw a full page of machinery that looked interesting. Well, Kirby can. And we got on page nine, a full page devoted to a big piece of machinery that Reed has built that is just gorgeous. It is fully worthy of its splash page. We briefly see Johnny at college, where once again, we're supposed to care about this football coach who is stuck with a bum quarterback and who cares. We go back to Reed, who is going into subspace later to be called the negative zone. And Steve, as you pointed out online, he (laughs) says, where is it? We must. He says, but I can't turn back now. Subspace must be explored. And conquered for the good of mankind. (laughs) It's like, whoa, 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 Mr. Colonizer there. Slow your roll. (laughs) And, you know, as somebody else pointed out, probably meant conquered as in when we got the power to uh, build planes, we conquered the skies. But still. Yeah, it, uh, it's not a good look. <laughs> so, yeah, and there will be a great John Burton storyline later where they just explore the negative zone for uh, several issues. I'll point out that on the bottom of page eight, 
Mr. Fantastic is saying there are those who have mastered the space-time principle, the ability to speed faster than light to any part of the universe. Galactus, the Watcher, the Silver Surfer, they can all do it. And it says there can be no defense against a faster-than-light attack. And so for the safety of Earth, for the sake of the human race, man too must break the same barrier. Dude, there has been a lot of faster-than-light travel that, that the Fantastic Four has been at least exposed to, if not actually doing actively themselves before now. Oh, yeah, so, I mean, the Fantastic Four has been to other planets multiple times. Like, clearly, right. they aren't still in the spaceship 60 years later trying to make their way out of our solar system. Clearly, they've engaged in faster-than-light travel. Yes, that's a great bit of dialogue there, but it makes no sense within the context of the larger Fantastic Four. So then we cut back to Reed, who is exploring the negative zone. We have plenty of Kirby crackles. So Kirby, now that he has invented Kirby crackle very late in the game, he is now in love with it and showing it as much as he can. So Dicko is the person you go to for other dimensional fantasy scapes. But Kirby is doing a pretty good job here trying to equal him as we get to the as we get to the negative, I want to say phantom zone, as we get to the negative <laughs> zone. And then Kirby does something that Dicko can't do or Dicko chooses not to do. And that is photo collages. And we get maybe Kirby's all-time greatest photo collage on oh, yes. page 14. Kirby is just grooving on 1966 here. This is the psychedelic era and I'm loving it. He is really put together a beautiful photo collage, which for once is really nicely reproduced. Doesn't have a lot of the splotchy blacks that a lot of his photo collages have. I am loving it. So let me just say that, you know, you were comparing Jack Kirby's interdimensional, otherworldly, you know, zones to uh, Steve Ditko's. And the two panels on the bottom of page 13, I actually found quite underwhelming. You know, that's why when we got to the photo collage page, I was like, ah, now there's the good stuff. But yeah, I was getting yeah. into some discussions with folks online about my statements that Jack Kirby could not yet equal Steve Ditko in terms of actually drawing interdimensional fantasy scapes like that and some folks were vigorously pushing back on me for that i'm like well you know give him give him a couple of years <laughs> no i'll <laughs> back you up i think that the two panels on the bottom of page 13 are not up to see deco but then we get to the photo collage which makes it all wonderful so then we get to see something we'll see frequently in the future when they go to the negative zone even though it again to be clear at this point not only are they not calling this negative zone but they are calling the barrier surrounding the inhumans great refuge the negative zone which is so confusing, but eventually they will get all their terminology straightened out. We see the negative version of the Earth with rocks being drawn into it, this bizarre entry to the negative zone that we'll see many times over the years and frequently get in danger with. The scientist pretending to be Ben is supposed to be hanging on to Reed's wire and then, essentially belaying Reed. Yes. And so the whole idea here, we have not talked about his motivation in doing all this. He has always been jealous of Reed Richards' accomplishments and feels like he is a superior scientist and he deserves to be more famous than Reed. And so he is here and he's like, oh, this is my chance to kill Reed. Sue is saying, Ben, the line is growing taut. It's Reed. It's his signal. Pull him then quickly, Ben. He is thinking, I won't try to save him. But then he thinks, wait, no, I will. He says, I never saw things so clear before. It's almost like I've really become the thing, not just an imitation. I never did a worthwhile thing in my whole life. But now I finally got the chance. I can really be Ben Grimm. I got to do it. I'll save Richards. But he's waiting too late. He tries to play it and the wire snaps. And then he realizes he has to jump into the negative zone and save Reeve Richards and throw him back out and then die himself going into the negative version of the Earth in the negative zone. And he has to die a hero. We cut briefly to Ben, who is about to visit Alicia, only to, when the guy dies, get his powers back. And then he decides to run away, not talk to Alicia. Reed figures out what was going on, figures out that this was a scientist pretending to be Ben Grimm, and now he owes that man his life. Says, we'll never know what monstrous things he had done in the past or what monstrous plans he had made. But one thing is certain, he paid the full price, and he paid it like a man. We've had a lot of very long storylines recently. We had four-issue Frightful Four storyline, followed by a four-issue Inhuman storyline, followed by a three-issue Galactus storyline. Here we have just a one-off, and it is amazing to see that they can still do it, and they can tell amazing one-issue storylines. And I think this is maybe the all-time, well, I was going to say the all-time greatest single-issue storyline the Fantastic Four. I think John Byrne's Fantastic Four 236 may beat it, but this is 
a truly amazing issue. What did you both think of it? Let's start with you, Steve, and then go on to you, David. Overall, I co-sign on all the stuff about what an important issue this is and just how sophisticated the storytelling team has become, and they've got all sorts of range in them still. So a few things that jumped out at me as we went through. When Reed is going into his experimental thing, he switches on a little latch that says, Danger! Experiment! Dash! Space Time! Which, you know, (laughs) that's kind of awesome. So you very much glossed over, and for good reason, the whole incident with Johnny at college uh, and the whole thing with the football coach. But I do want to bring up that they, they did a sort of weird thing here. The coach is known as Coach Thorpe, T H O R P E. And then the coach recognizes Wyatt Wingfoot and says, Oh, your dad, uh, I think, played for his team back in the day or something like that. Your dad's one of the greatest Olympic decathletes of all time. So, Jim Thorpe was, in our actual reality, one of the greatest American athletes of all time. He was a decathlon star. He was a football star down at, back at the very beginning of the NFL and was Native American and is probably the most famous Native American athlete today. So by throwing the name Thorpe in there, they're trying to, I think, get that to click in people's minds, just sort of associate Wyatt Wingfoot with this real-life athlete that was back there. And it's a strange way they did it, but I I, kind of like it. It it accomplished what it was supposed to do. And yeah, throughout the time that the Thing's imposter is there with the Fantastic Four, it becomes clear that not only did he think he was the superior scientist, either they he was a superior man to Richards or that, hey, we're all kind of scummy people in this world and he's just hamming it up as this like hero and he doesn't deserve the fame he gets from that. But as he's going through, he keeps on having these observations of like, oh, wow, look, he's really working really hard. (laughs) He's doing some amazing stuff. Wow. He's endangering himself for no fame, no fortune to himself. i I think I was wrong. I think this guy's actually the real deal. And so that was part of the buildup to the guy eventually deciding, you know what? This guy actually is a better person than me. The world deserves to continue to have Reed Richards instead of continuing to have me. Um, yeah, I which, think people think of this as a great thing issue, but it's really a, an issue about Reed proving himself to be a great hero to someone who assumes otherwise, you know, and obviously discovering the negative zone and doing all this amazing stuff. But yeah, sort of uh, proving himself to be someone who has named himself Mr. Fantastic. So, um, <laughs> you know, has a little bit of a egotism problem. Well, and, um, uh, and he named himself Mr. Fantastic moments after turning his lifelong friend into a hideous monster. Right. They come out of this thing and it's like, oh, man, I really screwed up there, didn't I? Yeah, you warned me about this, didn't you, Ben? And I didn't listen to you. And now look at you. You're a hideous orange monster and you'll never be human again. By the way, I'm calling myself Mr. Fantastic. (laughs) Uh, I was just checking my notes and I say in my notes, Ben shows up and is trying to convince him there's been brain searching going on. And you wouldn't think they'd get fooled again. You'd think they'd say, well, weird things happen to us precisely once a month and nothing weird has happened to us yet this month. So this is probably it. But uh, they don't do that. No. So, David, can we get your thoughts? You said that you have thoughts and we would like to hear them. Uh-oh. Hello? David? There you go. Now you hear me? Oh, now we can yes. hear you. Yes. Sorry, I was in mute, so I, I wouldn't interrupt you with my laughter. Uh, <laughs> we want to hear it. We love to hear the laughter. Come on. You oh, cheated us with oh, your laughter. Give me so good, some good ones. Oh, <laughs> damn it. All right, go on. So, Joyful yeah. and rich and so on. Anyways, uh, full disclosure here, I'm not a Fantastic Four guy. I've never really liked the book. I recognize the historic importance and how meaningful the book is and so on. But I just don't connect with the book, except in these instances. This is this team at the top of their game. The only thing that really pisses me off a little, I must say, is 
is how they must close over the the fact that Ben Grimm is right there standing in front of them. <laughs> so never mind the thing. Ben Grimm is right there. And and Mr. Fantastic, like you were saying, I'm beginning to think he, he named himself, you know, with a little bit of uh, irony. Yeah, Mr. Fantastic. Uh, but he's right there and he doesn't even really remember his best friend's face. And that's a little hard to swallow. But Yes. And the point is, it's hard to swallow and it's really easy not to have that moment that slightly weighs down the, the whole issue. You just yeah. leave Ben in, in, in the scientist's apartment and that's and that's it. You don't need that. But anyways, it's just great. Even the the little trick of, of the scientist guy to bring the thing into his into his neighborhood and so on. But it's just hit after hit after hit, mostly and this is me being a being a comic book artist, mostly in the art. The the Kirby closet, the negative zone, the collage. Two yeah. splash pages that should not have to work. They have no right to work. And they're just <laughs> historic. It just is it's so 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 great. So so great. I, I love this issue. It doesn't happen with that many Fantastic Four issues for me, but this is just great. They have there's a lot of little details. The fact that the, the scientist guy is nameless, the fact that he has managed to cure Ben Grimm. Which Mr. Fantastic has not managed to do yet. <laughs> True. Is, you just need a, an idiot who's ready to become a green, orange, and rocky thing. But other than that, he has cured Ben Grimm. I don't know. I, I just love it. The whole, the sum of its parts is way bigger than its parts. And that's that's one of the things I love of a piece of art or of a piece of you know communication, whatever you want to call it. So many little elements working perfectly as they should not work. If that makes sense, the collage, the photographic collage should not work. It's great. Mm. Yeah. It's, I do agree that that those two previous uh, panels just don't make the cut. They're cheap uh, Ditko knockoffs. But Kirby doesn't, doesn't really need to draw them because he can compose them. So... Pfft. It's the whole team playing so many instruments at the same time and doing it so well and little details that go over. I just noticed that Reed goes into the, whatever, the subspace, the negative zone with a gun holster uh, on his hip. And I had not even really noticed until right now as you were going over the, the issue again. And it's it's layer over layer over layer. The arc of the scientist guy shouldn't work, but it works. And I don't get how they managed to do it. And I love that from a book not being able to get how they managed to do it in just the one issue <laughs> that seamlessly and hitting so high into their respective fields every now and then. So I just love this issue. Yeah. And that's a really interesting observation you had about they could have just completely left Ben Grimm's confrontation with the Fantastic Four out. It would have been perfectly easy to just say he wakes up on this couch he is suddenly actually ben Grimm, and he says okay well i'm not in the fantastic four anymore obviously because i don't have those powers Mm -hmm. and so i'm gonna go to alicia and present myself to her as a real human man and there didn't have to be that detour to baxter building at all and if you wanted some tension between the the imitation thing and the fantastic two i guess (laughs) she just need him to speak normally and there you go it's, that's funny. I I don't remember Ben saying I don't know reciprocally or whatever. Oh, what's that's strange. Oh no, just the word of the day thing that I'm doing, and that's it. If you if you want that little bit of tension in there in that point in the issue, but still it it works. That's the one thing that maybe does not work so well, but. Who yeah. cares, to be honest? Yep. Just I to think- go back to uh, the things I was saying about Jim Thorpe earlier, I pulled up his Wikipedia page. I had completely forgotten he was also a Major League Baseball player. So he won two gold medals in the Olympics for the decathlon and the classic pentathlon. And then he played for the early NFL and for early Major League Baseball. And apparently he was doing both baseball and football simultaneously in the same seasons. Like Jackson. But yeah, why does Reed have a gun holster? I guess he has said he's gone there to conquer the the negative zone. And he's going to conquer. You need a gun. 
an entire dimension he has never been to before. He's never even seen, but he's like, well, I'm about to go to a dimension I've never seen before. I'm sure it's the sort of thing I'm going to want to conquer. I'd better bring a gun, uh, which I've never had before or since on my uniform. But uh, this is the one time he brings one. It is rather strange. To me, you did not have to suffer with us through other issues where first George Russo's was thinking Kirby and then even worse, oh. Vince Galletta mm-hmm. was thinking Kirby for four issues. So you maybe can't appreciate Sinat as much as we can, but what do you think about Sinat as an anchor and think about his things on this issue? Again, the whole team is at the top of their game and, and yeah. Sinat is not an exception in this one. He reads Kirby perfectly. He adds where he has to add particularly in the, yeah, it's the last page, the fine point nuance inking of the facial expressions in that final page that makes it almost not Kirby, but not. It's not. It's a great job. I really love this one. I really love this one. And again, the whole team, and that's including Inks, is at the top of their game in this one. So it just works. Ben's shouting face when the false thing crunches yes. a steel rod is just perfect. It's just the right amount of going away from Kirby's pencils to make them even richer, but not enough. So it's not, it's a balance that's very hard to get. And he gets it here. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So to feel, we have discussed with you the three issues that you had a chance to read. You are a busy man. You are the penciler for Superman for DC Comics. You and you're going to look over it. <laughs> a wife and child. I think that we can let you go. It is almost midnight in Barcelona. Yeah, tomorrow it's, it's still a school day. Yes. And this is great. And I love to hear you guys talk about comics. I learn a lot from hearing you guys talking about comics. But yeah, I think I should call it a day. All right. Well, David, thank you so much. No, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me again. Twice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully and this time everything will work. <laughs> let's hope, let's hope so. Yes. And we'd be happy to have you back anytime. Mm-hmm. We've we got to try and repeat this one. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully uh, in an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We can hopefully do that next time. Okay, great. We're going to go ahead and say goodbye to you and then keep on recording more of the issues of this month ourselves. But thank you so much, and we will be in touch later. Sure. So let's move on to Strange Tales, number 145. And it's an all-shield cover, with the exception of Doctor Strange appearing in the corner box with what looks like a Kirby rendition of Doctor Strange. On the cover, it says, Lo, the eggs shall hatch and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and we see an all-out action-packed battle between S.H.I.E.L.D., including a shirtless Nick Fury and, yes. and the Druids, Eggs, and Henchmen. And by the way, I have to say I am shocked and disappointed at myself that I have not before now made some kind of a comment about deviled eggs with this whole storyline. I do yes. not know how either of us have let that happen. I'm just as disappointed with you as I am with me. Yeah, I, uh, I can only <laughs> apologize. <laughs> so long as S.H.I.E.L.D. endures, who can forget these glory-drenched names? Stan Lee writer, Jack Kirby designer, Don Heck penciler. Is this the first one we've had Don Heck finishing up the pencils? I yes, believe it sadly. is. Yes. Mickey DeMeo Inker, of course, Mike Esposito under a pseudonym. Sam Rosen Letterer and Irving Forbush Badge Polisher. Yes. We start out with a life model decoy of Nick Fury being equipped with this incredible miniaturized TV viewer that's designed to fit in a space as small as a human head. Of course, uh, this is the 60s, so that I'm sure was quite science fiction. These days, it's like, seriously? (laughs) Really? Yeah, we can do that. I do notice that the strap to his eye patch is just painted onto this thing. (laughs) So for all the idea about these life model decoys being so lifelike that you would never know the difference, you would think they would just actually strap a real eye patch onto this thing. And, you know, there's going to be a weird hairline on that. There's just all sorts of issues I have with this thing. So we see this army of ersatz 
Colonel Furies that are ready to act as further decoys. We see some more Jasper Sitwell. He's bringing in some intelligence for them to review. He is once again being his somewhat obnoxious but very loyal and helpful and capable self. So the Druid's plan is being unleashed. He is unleashing more of these deviled eggs. S.H.I.E.L.D. still has the Fixer from the previous uh, adventures as a prisoner. So Fury goes to interrogate him. Says maybe the Fixer knows something about those eggs. I got a hunch there's a bigger outfit behind you, mister. Speak up. Who were they? And he says, they were known to me only as them. They brought me my supplies, helped me obtain my weapons. And we will later find out that this is actually AIM. But this turns out to be a dead end in terms of this interrogation because the fixer lets them know that AIM has no connection with the current thing that's going on. The druid has some sort of light absorber, which allows him to be kind of invisible. But Jasper Sitwell has a gadget on him that shines infrared light on him, which then makes him actually visible to people. Nice spy gadgetry there. So Fury and the druid end up in just a fist fight. I never love let's all this man to man endings. I thought that the first Captain Marvel movie did a great job parodying them. Captain Marvel has essentially beat Jan Rog and Jan Rog's like, wait, let's go ahead and settle this man to woman. Let's go ahead and fight it out. No powers involved. And she's like, why would I do that? No, I'll just zap you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for whatever reason, they are going to just fight it out mano a mano. And of course, Fury's shirt gets ripped off very quickly, or I guess he's actually ripping his own shirt off uh, in order to make himself some boxing gloves out of the fabric. So Fury is winning the hand-to-hand combat. Jasper Sitwell, meanwhile, is in a super high-tech car with a super high-tech looking dashboard. He is able to eject the top of the car and has more weaponry behind him. He is able to shoot some sort of smoke canisters into the woods where the druids hideout is and flush everybody out there are more egg-shaped things but some of them have tank treads on them some are walkers of various sorts it's interesting (laughs) eventually at the end of course shield comes out on top what i know right They're arresting uh, the Druid's henchmen, and the henchmen are like, we give up. There's no sense fighting anyway, since the Druid's been beaten. Another one says, that's right, with him gone, how will we get our salary this week? Third one says, I wonder if we're eligible for unemployment insurance. I can answer that for you, buddy. Probably not. Yes. And then there's a sequence right at the bottom of the last page of this story, page 12, that I find quite interesting. So if you buy the idea that Sitwell is, at least in part, a good-hearted parody of Roy Thomas, I think that this sequence takes on a little bit more meaning. So Sitwell says, we still have not discovered the Druid's true identity, Colonel. Shall I attempt to learn who he is? Says, huh? Sure. Why not? It'll keep you busy anyway. He thinks the kid sure is an eager beaver. He'll be my boss before I know it. Hey, I never thought of that. I wonder how ambitious Sitwell really is. He <laughs> says, okay, don't stand around with your bare face flapping. Take off. Then on the final panel, Dum Dum is saying, what you thinking, Nick? And he responds, I was just wondering how I'd feel if they ever tried to replace me with a younger guy. When... Stan Lee's uncle-in-law finally sells Marvel. Lee moves up to the uh, position of publisher, and Roy Thomas takes over Lee's job as editor. Yes. Yeah, like I said, I find this sequence has some more meaning, and I don't know whether any of it was meant in the time, but I wouldn't be too surprised if it was. Yeah. And it certainly is uh, significant for what happened later. That's funny. So what, what are your thoughts? what are your thoughts on this story? It's a shame to have Heck here. He's never my favorite artist, but he's getting sort of sandwiched between Kirby and Tomeo. And it 
turns out fine. But we begin our long wait now until Steranko comes on the book. Well, briefly, John Buscema is going to come on the book, and then it's going to be Steranko, and that is going to be the golden age of Nick Fury. I think we've got about six issues to wait. But this is a perfectly fine book. I like Sitwell. You know, I complained about the Face Me Man-to-Man endings, but it, it's a good way to showcase Nick Fury and let him get the win. It's fine. It's an okay issue. Okay art. Okay writing. Yeah, it's interesting that if Sitwell is a Thomas stand-in, it's not in a Thomas book. It's an Lee book. Yeah, but I think that's an interesting theory. Oh, and you were talking about Storanko. I believe that Rob Salkowitz said he wanted to come back for the first Storanko month. So yes. hopefully we will be able to have that, along with other guest hosts that we have plans to bring in. So, Matt, you have talked about how every time we do one of these episodes, you go back to look at one of these issues that you've read before. And you're like, did I read this issue? I'm having that a little bit with this Doctor Strange story. but I'll do my best to get through this one. Eerily edited by Stan Lee, spookily scripted by... Dennis O'Neill. Of course, Denny O'Neill and Ditko are going to end up working at Charlton at the same time before too long here. This is our introduction to Denny O'Neill, who will go on to be a rather important comics creator for comics in general, and I think for our experience of comics in particular. Yes, so Denny O'Neill, one of my favorite writers, largely not associated with Doctor Strange-type heroes, associated first and foremost with Batman, who he will soon move on to DC and start writing Batman. And then later, he wrote a comic we both love called The Question. He wrote a lot of street-level heroes, but... He would have some mystic heroes that he would write through the years. He did 100 issues of a Batman spinoff called Asriel that had a little bit of a mystic element to it. But this is huge. This is the first appearance of Daniel Neal. If I remember correctly, he was very young, I think, at this point when he was on this book. And I think he does a good job. Lee was writing this book quite inimitably. Then Thomas had to come on and imitate it anyway and did a pretty good job. And now I think O'Neill's doing a fine job. Uh, And I was honored enough to meet Denny O'Neill a year or so before he passed and saw him as a show was closing down for the day and just went up and shook his hand and told him how important all of his work was to me, in particular the question. And you did not acknowledge that the question was created by Steve Ditko. And then Ah. later, Denny O'Neill deconstructed the question in the 80s when that was all the rage. Yes, and de-randified him very much so. Very much so, yes. Had him essentially die and be reborn as more of a Zen Buddhist character rather than a Randian objectivist character. uh, How do you pronounce this? Demoniacally drawn by Steve Ditko? I think it's sure. a demoniacally, sure, and laconically lettered by Artie Simak. This is entitled To Catch a Magician Introducing Mr. Rasputin, or Rasputin, if we take the dance hit from the 70s. I don't remember that. Yeah, I think his name is Boney James, and it recently apparently became a TikTok viral thing. So I heard it on my daughter's Spotify at one point. It was a song I'd heard before at one point, but I'm like, what is up with this? She's like, oh, TikTok, it's it's a thing. Ra Ra Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. Ever heard that? No, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I am not on TikTok. <laughs> uh, no, well, neither am I, but it's a song from the 70s. You like 70s music. Maybe you can use that in one of your music trivia nights. And uh, maybe the college students there do use TikTok and might be able to get it. <laughs> yes, I can do a music round of all Doctor Strange villains. <laughs> hey, play the song Disco Dormammu and play Mr. Baron Mordo. And there's all sorts of songs I could do. Are those actual songs? <laughs> No, I'm making this up. (laughs) I'm joking. Because, you know, I mean, Wings had Magneto versus Doctor Doom as a song or something like that, wasn't it? I have no idea. That's the first I've heard that. Anyway, back to what we're supposed to be doing here. As I said, this was a relatively forgettable story, so I relatively forgot about what's going on here. But Mr. Sputin basically wants to take over the world and is using his magical powers to go around and haunt world leaders and get access to government files and all sorts of stuff. He then shows up in New York, hoping to do something with the United Nations. Doctor Strange senses that 
there is a magical menace of some sort in New York City, suspects it might be Baron Mordo. So he is scanning the city, and then he finds Mr. Rasputin. They commence a magical battle. It's uh, for, for a Ditko magical battle, it's a little bit underwhelming. But <laughs> then sure. Mr. Asputin pulls an Indiana Jones by just pulling a gun out of his cloak and shooting Doctor Strange in the gut, which, uh, okay, nice twist. Here. Yes. <laughs> so he realizes he is quite wounded and is able to get his cloak of levitation to levitate him into a hospital. So this guy then goes and tries to hire just a hitman to go ahead and take care of Dr. Strange in his hospital bed. And the guy says, I'll be in touch as soon as I finish the job. So get the cash ready. Mr. Rasputin says, excellent, my friend, you will be given exactly what you deserve. I promise you at that point, that hitman should just walk away. He should, he <laughs> yeah. should just get out of town. <laughs> it's like, come on, buddy. You, 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 you should know better than that. So Dr. Strange is sending his astral self out to go and try to figure out what's going on and how to take care of it while his body remains motionless in the hospital bed. He then is able to send his cloak of levitation Dr. Strange's astral self is guiding the cloak of levitation to go and do his bidding for him. Uh, no, I, like, wa- I like how they're like a dynamic duo that they team up like my ectoplasmic self and my cloak can work together here. And then there's a great bit on page seven where he just uses the shadows to make it look like he's in the cloak and gets shot at. And then he's like, nope, that was just the cloak. Yeah, well, and because of the high collar, you're not able to see that the head's not actually there. But we had just seen that the hitman had just shown up in Doctor Strange's hospital room and had pulled out a gun that looks kind of like a science fiction gun, but apparently that's just a a silencer that's on the barrel of the gun. It seems like he's probably been shot by the time we see this next sequence with the cloak getting to Mr. Rasputin, but I guess maybe not. So Mr. Rasputin is trying to trap Doctor Strange in a nether dimension. Uh, so this is not the dark dimension, this is the nether dimension. But Doctor Strange is able to send his astral eye of Agamotto. <laughs> yeah, so this is a total cheat because he is using the astral eye of Agamotto against Dr. Rasputin, and then we cut back to his hotel room where he is using the actual eye of Agamotto at the same time against the assassin who's been sent to kill him in his room. And I'm like, okay, you can either use your astral form of your eye of Agamotto, or you can use the actual eye of Agamotto. You can't use them at the same time against different villains in different locations. I think that's a cheat. I, I I understand that. I didn't necessarily have a problem with it. What I see more as a cheat is that his physical body isn't supposed to be able to do anything while his astral body is out. But they've cheated that a little bit in the past yeah. as well. So since they've already kind of cheated that, this doesn't really bother me at this point. Yeah, so Doctor Strange is about to be enclosed in this nether dimension, but he's able to get his Eye of Agamotto out of the closing portal in time to hypnotize Mr. Rasputin, stop himself from being sucked into the netherworld. <laughs> I love that Dr. Strange thinks to himself, cloak, attack. Then the cloak wraps Mr. Rasputin up. Again, I don't think it's easy to make it clear that what's happening is the cloak is itself without a human being attacking and wrapping up this guy and pulling him around. That's probably much more difficult to pull off than it looks. But Ditko does it. Oh, yeah. And then he's able to use the cloak to carry Mr. Rasputin back (laughs) with him. So the cloak is tied around Rasputin's waist as it's floating alongside Dr. Strange's astral self. So then, yes, we see here that it looked like Doctor Strange was going to be dead several pages ago, but the actual Eye of Agamotto was doing the same thing the Astral Eye of Agamotto was doing elsewhere. So he sets them up so that they are definitely going to be confessing. And this is the penultimate chapter of Ditko's run on Doctor Strange. And I am sadly thinking about that, but this next issue is going to feature Eternity once again, who is a great visual, if nothing else. So I am actually looking forward to the next issue, even with some bittersweet feelings. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. This is very much a filler issue. Mr. Sputin is a perfectly fine villain, but very much a filler villain. Dicko is, at this point, going to do his final issues of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange next month, and Spider-Man will end anticlimactically, but Doctor Strange will end extremely climactically, and he will, I think, regret having this two filler issues in a row of Doctor Strange because he is going to suddenly decide, I am leaving Marvel, I am going to wrap up all of my Doctor Strange storylines, and he is going to give an epic conclusion to everything he's been doing in Doctor Strange next issue with a hell of an issue, and I'm sure he's going to regret, like, oh, I wish I'd broken this finale up into three issues instead of doing those two filler stories, but... This is a perfect good story. I want to go ahead and praise some things about it. I love the shadows on page three. Uh, at one point, Doctor Strange is flying over the city and we see his face lit from beneath. It all looks very much like a Frank Miller Daredevil. The artist is beautiful. We should point out that this issue, when you read the credits, said edited by Stan Lee, scripted by Danny O'Neill, drawn by Steve Dicko, lettered by Ernie Samick. So Dicko does not get a plotting credit on this issue. I assume that's a mistake and that he should get a plotting credit. It certainly seems like it's spotted by Dicko to me. And of course, we know that Dicko was not in contact with Lee at all at this point. Presumably, he wasn't in contact with O'Neill either. Presumably, Dicko was doing the solo plotting on this book. I love how step by step, the cloak has gotten more and more sophisticated in every issue of like the last 12 issues of this book. At this point, it is very much the co-hero of the book, which then the MCU will eventually take up and give it its own personality. And, you know, I love it smothering the villain seemingly to death and then carrying his limp body home, flying alongside the ectoplasmic form. It is gorgeous. So I think this is a gorgeous issue. I like Mr. Sputin just fine, but I think he is going to very much regret having this filler issue when he has to cram such a finale into the next issue. So let's move on. It is going to be your turn for Tales of Suspense. Tell me a story of Iron Man and Ultimo. Okay, Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America on the cover. There's no Iron Man, it's just Captain America, but it says Captain America and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. together at last, featuring the macabre menace of them. So we have much more of trying to bring different books together. So yes, he was on the trail of them, and here he is again here. But first, let's go ahead and do the Iron Man story quickly. Once again, we have actual credit giving to Gene Cohen, but not to Jack Abel. It's a spectacular story by Stan Lee, pace-setting penciling by Gene Colan. Again, people must have thought, this new penciler looks a lot like the old penciler. <laughs> Indescribable inking by Gary Michaels, who is Jack Abel, still being credited under a pseudonym. Lonesome lettering by Artie Simak. When last we left, Iron Man was in China fighting a giant blue robot being run by the Mandarin. Unfortunately, the Mandarin still looking a little buck-toothed, which is very unfortunate. Yes. Iron Man is fighting Ultimo for many pages. He eventually figures out how to sort of lure him into a volcano and have him blow himself up. <laughs> the Mandarin is trying to drag his moat to find Tony Stark. Still can't put two and two together here. There's an interesting little sequence. Again, it's always interesting in these comics and in the movies of can Iron Man fly around the world or not? And here he clearly cannot. He has to steal a MIG in a nicely drawn sequence by Colin and Abel. But he gets home and finds that the gates of his factory are closed and everything has been shut down. That was a shockingly quick summary of this issue, but it's not. <laughs> it was. I, I would say a welcomely quick <laughs> summary because you didn't really miss much. It's good. Yes. I like Ultimo being lit by beneath. I like the inking on Ultimo. I think Abel does a fine job on this issue. So I've got nothing more to say about this Iron Man half of this issue. I think that it's perfectly fine. I like Ultimo's visual, but um, it's not much of an issue. Let's go ahead then and learn about Captain America, Nick Fury, and them. Them. So, to be memorized by heart, wondrous words by Stanley, awesome art by Jack Kirby, doing full penciling, which is nice. Incredible inking by Frank Giacoya, given credit under his real name. He's been credited as Frank Ray more often than not. Lopsided lettering by Artie Simak. As you will recall, Captain America had the biggest unrequited boy crush from afar on Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., back before he even was an Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. For a long time in The Avengers, Cap was like, oh, if only Nick Fury would talk to me, if only he would let me work for S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, now Captain America is practicing in Avengers Mansion when who should walk in the door but Nick Fury. It's a nice little intro for Fury where there's these shocking balls flying around Captain America and Fury just grabs one and crushes it 
even though he does not have superpowers. So Nick Fury is the only Marvel hero to star in two books at the same time. He is starring in Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos as his World War II age self, and he's starring in this book as his presumably getting pretty old self in uh, the modern Marvel age. Captain America has guest starred in Sergeant Fury and Howling Commandos. So they talk about how they know each other from the war. Oh, this is the first time they've met in modern day. Nick Fury takes out a little model of the human brain that they captured from a secret organization known only as them. If this gizmo was dropped in a hydroponic tank of chemicals, it would have grown into the real thing. Sure enough, it turns out that a huge robot with little canisters all over its chest to turn it into various chemical things comes and attacks Avengers Mansion, can just cover itself in acid and walk right through the wall. And this robot is very Kirby. Yes. <laughs> it's got uh, tubes on its face that end up looking vaguely like eyes and a nose, but they are not. Yes. He can also shoot gas. He can do all kinds of stuff. They get in a big fight. The relationship between them and AIM is always a little bit tricky and often gets confusing. But for the first time, even though they're called them and not AIM, we see our classic AIM goons, which is to say we see our first beekeeper outfits. And <laughs> We cut to the yellow beekeeper outfits, which will become quite famously the AIM outfit. Great drawing on page seven. They have a huge vat where they are growing more of these androids. It looks quite terrifying. I was quite disappointed that in the MCU, they sort of threw away the AIM organization on something else and we never got the beekeeper look. Well, there was a beekeeper outfit in WandaVision and it seemed like, oh, is this going to be related to AIM? But it was not. They used up the name AIM somewhat aimlessly in Iron Man 3. I see what you did there. The two of them team up and defeat the android, and then it turns to wood, obviously, when it's all done. And then Nick Fury says, thanks, I'm going to go back to trying to fight them by myself. I'll cut out before we need a couple of crying towels. See you around, pal. Catherine thinks, in my hand, he pressed something, a piece of metal, and it says priority A1. It's got a little shield shield. It says, next time you want to reach me, it won't be so hard to do. And then it says, next issue, the return of the Red Skull, which is exciting. But I think this is great. It was long overdue for these two people who had been the subject of this boy crush from afar. I'm so glad that they finally get to battle together, meet for the first time since World War II. AIM, once they finally settle on the name AIM instead of them, are going to be great ongoing villains. And I love the beekeeper outfits, which we see for the first time here. And it's just so nice to have full Kirby pencils, which has become a rare treat these days, especially when they're not inked by Vince Coletta really knocking himself out and being well inked by Frank Giacoya. It's a real treat. I love this issue. I only have a couple of things to add to what you said. First of all, in my usual science, but actually, you know, <laughs> mode, I'm pushing my glasses up onto my face right now. There's a panel where the android is mixing these chemicals together. And Captain America thinks to himself, with his power of mixing chemicals, what if he decides the only way to finish us is to mix uranium-235? He could wipe out the whole city. Uh, and I'm just like, um, uranium-235 is an isotope of an element? You can't mix that? <laughs> you know? yes. uh, I know, I know, I know. But still. The last thing is when we see the spent husk of the android on the final page. I know they say it's wood, but this seems to, and once again, with two first-generation immigrant Jewish creators on this, that looks like a as-yet-lifeless golem to me. Yeah, it does. I don't know if that was conscious, subconscious, or just an absolute coincidence, but I just figured I'd point it out. Yeah, I should say they still really know what to do with Captain America, and you know he's going to be working a lot with... Sharon Carter, Agent 13, and she's going to be working for S.H.I.E.L.D., and they're going to be going on missions together. And there's always going to be this thing hanging over Cap of, should he just be working for S.H.I.E.L.D.? Should he just become a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent? He wanted to back before S.H.I.E.L.D. even existed, and now he's sort of changed his mind, but he's happy to have a S.H.I.E.L.D. badge, and he will eventually get going on a lot of missions for Nick Fury. They just are never sure what to do with Captain America in modern day. Eventually, within a couple of years, he's going to try to become a beat cop, which makes no sense at all. And then eventually you get to the 80s and he's like, no, I'm going to have a hotline where people can call me up over the country and then I'll ride there on my motorcycle and help them. They never know what to do. But I think ultimately 
Captain America should probably just become a shield agent, but they never quite go there. You know, to support himself, he becomes a commercial artist at one point, and they actually have an issue where he goes to the Marvel offices to possibly get a job as a Marvel Comics artist. (laughs) (laughs) A fun little bit. So, The Avengers, number 29, This Power Unleashed. I really enjoy this cover. We've got Giant Man lifting the swordsman up in one hand. Swordsman is about to swipe at Giant Man. Power Man, meanwhile, is swinging a log, it looks like at Giant Man. We have the Black Widow in the bottom right corner. What color are the highlights on her black outfit on your copy? Green. Yeah, same here. It seems a little bit weird. But then in the background, we have the rest of the Avengers rushing to, oh, I call them Giant Man, rushing to Goliath's aid. Generally a good cover. I like it okay. I'm not crazy about it. I think that Goliath's proportions are all out of whack. Top half of his body is bigger than the bottom half of his body. But uh, We saw some real out of whack proportions in the previous issue. That one doesn't <laughs> yes. bother me nearly as much. And <laughs> I always think it's silly that Black Widow has a bee brooch uh, holding her cape yes. on. As you know, I'm never a fan of people having the first letter of their name on their outfit. But of course, there's Captain America right behind her with a big A on his forehead. So who am I to complain? Goliath had gotten stuck changing to human size. He is in poor health right now because his size changing has been terrible on his body. Oh, let me read the credits. Savage script by Stan Lee. Powerful penciling by Don Heck. Explosive embellishment by Frank Jacoya. Lethargic lettering by Sam Rosen. So they're trying to revive Goliath, who is unconscious as well as being stuck at 10 feet. (laughs) Pietro, he apparently thinks that trying to use the defibrillator faster is going to work better, <laughs> so, which it does not. So everyone's very worried about him, particularly Jan. Pietro says there's no more we can do for him. A physician is needed and needed fast. And she said, I remember Thor telling us to contact a Dr. Don Blake in case of emergency. Cap's like, you'd better call him right away, Jan. You know, not thinking. <laughs> Hmm, Jan's probably pretty emotionally devastated right now. Maybe we should go do the phone call. And also, as somebody pointed out online, Jan and Dr. Don Blake have had a whole exchange where in the visual storytelling, he revealed to her that he was Thor, but Stan Lee changed the dialogue to make it sound like he didn't know, but it's all very much a ruse. So when she's like, oh, a Dr. Don Blake, she's she's met the man. <laughs> she knows. Yeah. Uh, but of course, Dr. Don Blake is not available because he's never available. And I'm sure that all of his patients get the same thing. Why they stick with him, I have no clue. Yes. So they're able to get another doctor whom Steve Rogers had known in World War II. This is where we learn that supposedly Goliath is going to be stuck at this size forever, which is, you know, unfortunate. But one thing that I have a problem with it's on the very first splash page and so goliath is born but after successfully defeating his newest foes disaster strikes the 25 foot titan has remained giant sized longer than his safety limit of a quarter hour uh that is not what they said last issue they said last issue he had to wait at least 15 minutes between size changes so uh that's actually contradictory and opposite of what what they told us last issue. Then we change our scene to somewhere in, quote, the foreboding Far East. And this is a little bit confusing because we have an Asiatic-looking communist apparatchik, I guess, now, (laughs) uh, leader of some sort, who calls forth the now re-brainwashed Black Widow, and he's referring to... You were once our greatest female agent. And meanwhile, the guy behind this communist functionary saying, ah, so, and the once very typical, but now considered quite racist caricature of Chinese speech. So either these folks. But he's called Dr. Yen, Y-E-N. Oh, which is, of course, sounds Japanese. (laughs) Um, Although, I mean, that I I don't know. For all I know, that could be a Chinese name. Well, first of all, there was. You know, I think that Stanley was not realizing the degree to which China and Russia hated each other at this point. I think that generally speaking, most anti-communists in America still didn't believe that they had turned against each other. But I think there was just this idea going back to 
The Manchurian Candidate, which had come out a couple years before, that brainwashing was an Asian art that ah. even if you're Russian, if you want somebody brainwashed, you would want to bring in someone who says also and has a name like <laughs> Dr. Yen, and neither of those is associated with Koreans, which is where the original deranged conspiracy theory involving brainwashing actually originated. But it's all getting mixed up, as always. Yes. Although, you know, I had a back and forth about this with somebody online when I posted some of this stuff to social media. Someone else pointed out the architecture on panel four of page four definitely looks more Russian than it does Chinese. And because what would eventually become the Russian Empire was largely dominated by the so-called Golden Horde, which was the actual name of the part of the Mongol Empire that remained in that part of the world, there is a lot of Mongol ancestry mixed in with Russians and other peoples of the old Russian Empire. Now, I um, think later, in about a year, when Roy Thomas has taken over writing the book, there will be another storyline, which is more explicitly about Black Widow being brainwashed and she does not go behind the Iron Curtain. She goes behind the Bamboo Curtain. <laughs> so Goliath is really not taking this whole situation well and then wanders off on his own. We then cut to a woman in a carnival having knives thrown at a board behind her, surrounding her. And she's thinking to herself, he grows more skillful each day. Like, <laughs> what? How long does it usually take him to hit you with one of these things? You want him to be as skillful as he's ever going to be before he starts doing this to an actual human being. But it turns out this is the swordsman whom we haven't seen in a little while. He is being recruited by the Black Widow. We then see Hawkeye and, once again, I'm going to edit in another air horn here. <laughs> On page six, Hawkeye says, what's doing? Do they finally accept your application for the old folks home? Captain America responds, you're a real panic, Junior. Just keep trying. You may become the poor man's soupy sales. Once again, the year of soupy sales continues. <laughs> how many how many soupy sales references have we had this year so far? Is that like number six or something? I think it's number five, I believe. It's our second this month. Yeah, it could be six. So Hawkeye is having his usual back and forth with Captain America. Hawkeye storms off. Captain America sends the Wasp to follow him because Hawkeye has been summoned secretly by the Black Widow. And he, even though he's a hero these days, is still ensorcelled by the Black Widow. So uh, he's like, yeah, I'm a good guy, unless you ask me to be a bad guy, in which case. So he's now working for them. No, sorry, not them. We were just talking about a group called them for Black Widow and Power Man and Swordsman. Do they have a name for this particular constellation of uh, bad guys here? No, I don't believe so. Uh, OK, we should point out that the Wasp in the beginning of this issue is still just wearing the swimsuit she was wearing when she was originally kidnapped by a tuba. I think that at this point they thought that this was just one of her many crazy costumes, but it, it, they had made it quite clear this was just a swimsuit. Finally, she changes, but she doesn't really put on a new costume. She puts on sort of a Audrey Hepburn-looking capri pantsuit sort of type thing uh, now to fly around. Capri pants and kind of a, a bodysuit on top or whatever, yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, I don't think she really started her parade of crazy outfits at this point had she i mean she was pretty consistent with her uniforms up until past this point if i'm not mistaken yeah she'd been through a few okay so she sees what's going on here uh jan who had tailed hawkeye there and so she's like oh no i must get word back of course she didn't take a communicator with her of some sort so she's trying to fly back in time to halt the situation and then oh a bird is coming up behind me and is going to eat me. The only way I can save myself is by becoming full size. But then my wasp's wings will vanish and I'm up too high. The fall will finish me. It's like height is your friend in this case. You can fall a good 20 or 30 feet and then shrink again and fly away. <laughs> the danger would be if you were like 15 feet up. Right? Yes. It's quite silly. And then there's a whole sequence where she ends up sitting on a branch next to the bird, becoming full size, cracking the branch, falling down and knocking herself out, which seems quite silly. Quite incompetent, as always. Female incompetence in these books. 
when she's watching Hawkeye fighting Power Man and Swordsman and Black Widow, she's like, I guess I better go get help. It's like, or you could just fight them because you are a superheroine yourself, Wasp. <laughs> yeah, she's outnumbered, she's, but, you know, still. Yeah. yeah. And then, as you say, as usually happens, the Avengers do not have any sort of security system, nor even lock their doors, as far as we can tell, because (laughs) folks waltz in there all the time. So Swordsman and Power Man come in and start fighting Captain America. They're able to capture Captain America and put him in, quote, a dark, dank, desolate dungeon. So he is stuck there for a while, although they did not think to check him for a communicator. Because, of course, he has one, even though Jan doesn't. (laughs) So so Pietro and Wanda head off to follow the signal. Meanwhile, Jan finally makes it back to Avengers Mansion. Everyone's gone. But then she remembers their new fancy messaging system. They seem really enamored of that thing at this point, which I don't really think it's the uh, crazy gadget you think it is. The other Avengers show up to try to rescue Captain America, but Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are both neutralized. Black Widow seems to be gloating that all this stuff is coming together. She's trying to make sure that Hawkeye is actually going to follow them. Apparently, he is like, I don't know, I'm a good guy these days, but you're so hot. Uh, (laughs) But then Goliath shows up. I forget how he figured out where they are. Shows up, starts fighting them. Black Widow tries to run off on her own, but then the Wasp fights her. Of course, you can only have women fighting women. Uh, Yada, yada. There's a big battle. The bad guys escape. Hawkeye is ashamed of himself for even considering joining these guys. And Goliath heads off moping. He's like, uh, I'll be all right. You go ahead. I'll catch up later on the <laughs> car anyway. Which, I mean, I can understand him being horribly depressed about this. And, you know, again, that's kind of the stuff that made Marvel different is you're going to have a superhero in a deep depression for possibly multiple issues, <laughs> which, you know, you wouldn't get in most other comics. So that is it. Overall, uh, we've had worse Avengers issues. It's not bad, but yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> How about you? I think this is this is pretty bad. Really not a fan at all of the art by Don Heck, not being saved by Frank Giacoya, even though Joy Okoye is a good penciler. I'm tired of the Black Widow-Hawkeye dynamic, although I guess we haven't seen her in a while, but this is still the same old dynamic between the two of them. And Power Man and Swordsman have become just, you know, perpetual dupes of whoever wants to use them. And they have not been strong villains. I guess they were both working for Enchantress last time we saw them. You know, the whole Hank Pym stuck at 10 feet tall, I never think really works. I do think it's kind of funny. His final line in this issue, like, I wouldn't fit in the car anyway. Like, uh, <laughs> like it's like, yeah, I guess that does suck. <laughs> you're, uh, you're in a sucky situation, dude. I like one thing about this issue is that we have six Avengers. We had four Avengers for way too long, and it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to sustain interest. But now we've got six Avengers, but we're about to lose two of them. Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are about to leave, and we're going to go back to under four Avengers again for several issues. I'm like, no, no, you want to have six. It's good. This is one of the rare issues where we have all six. All right, so I think that wraps up this month of Marvel Comics. As you said, you know, as always, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but we've had some really great stories in here mixed among some other ones. So I think I have arranged for a special guest for next episode. We haven't nailed down the details yet, but hopefully we will have a good special guest for the introduction of Black Panther. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Yes, this was obviously This Man, This Monster is one of the all-time great comics. And thanks again to David Baltion for stopping by just a little bit in both this episode and our last episode. And we'll look forward to our new guest next episode. So thanks, everybody. We will see you soon. Absolutely. And like and subscribe, as they say on YouTube. Yeah, rate and review us on the podcatcher of your choice, please. That always helps people find us. So if you enjoy what we're doing and you'd like to get more people interested, we would always appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Take care. Stay safe out there. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. 
We love hearing from you. Go to marvelrereadclub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.